Rory knows. Rory knows why he's very excited to tell us, Rory. Because it sneezes a lot of boogers. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are continuing our series on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. And just to remind the listeners, where did you do? Where did you do your research on this one? The book for this one was Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams. All right, why don't you go ahead and start us off on this one, Katie? When we left off last week, Paul Bernardo had just been dubbed the Scarborough Rapist after sexually assaulting numerous women in the Scarborough, Ontario area. One sergeant believed he might have a lead after Jennifer, Paul's ex-girlfriend who he attempted to kill after their breakup, came to him and told him what had happened. After returning to the station, the sergeant ran a background check on Paul and wrote a supplemental report to give the Scarborough Rapist detectives. He found it quite coincidental that Paul lived in the same area as the rapes, drove a white capri like one of the victims had described, and had two different assault charges, both filed by Jennifer. Doesn't any good detective not believe in coincidences? I guess it depends on how long they've been on the force. Yeah, well, this is a lot of coincidences for any good detective to just chalk up to being a coincidence. I mean, he didn't, and that's why he wrote the report and gave it to the detectives that were leading the Scarborough Rapist team so they could look into him. It was not his case, so he couldn't, like, go out and arrest Paul. Well, maybe Because he we had a need... white capri. Okay, you know, circumstantial evidence, you could bring him in for 72 hours. You can slap him around a bit, give him the slap and tickle, get him to confess. When the sergeant filed the report, though, he made a mistake and dated it January 5th, 1987, rather than 1988. Because of this, the report was filed away and wouldn't be seen again for many years. When you say filed away, does that mean that they tucked it back in an 87 file? Mm -hmm. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, and they were obviously not looking back that far for extra reports on suspects. Interesting. Most of the time when the year changes, we all do that shit for like a week where we put the wrong year, but I guess this is the one job where it really matters. You can't put the wrong date. Just throw shit a year into the past. Detectives Irwin and Wolf believed that the Scarborough rapists had slowed down, or, if they were lucky, stopped attacking women altogether. After the December 23rd attack, only one rape had taken place in April 1988, of course committed by Paul. One did occur in Peel Region in May, but they were under the impression that it was not their perp, seeing as it was a different city. They were once again wrong, as Paul had committed this rape, grabbing the woman as she walked down the street and dragging her between two houses. Police were completely unaware that Paul had every reason to be in Peel Region, as it was right in between Scarborough, where he lived, and St. Catharines, where Carla lived. How far away from Scarborough was Peel Region, like, mile-wise? It'd be kilometers. It's Canadian. Ah, yes. How many maple leaf miles away from Scarborough is Peel Region? Looks to be about 40 minutes, but I don't know exactly where, because I think... The Peel region is like a bunch of small cities. Obviously, I don't know that much about Canada, so I don't know how they like group everything together, but I think Peel region's a bunch of small-ish cities, and so I don't know exactly where in that region it took place, but I know it's pretty much dead in the middle between Scarborough and St. Catharines. So much, much farther than these detectives could ever imagine someone could travel on their own. Farther than they could get on horseback. Well, the thing about rapists is that they generally have, like, a comfort zone, and they stick to that. 
comfort zone. It's the same with serial killers. So when they're in a completely different city, you generally don't assume that they now started going out of their way to get away from you. What what makes Paul a different type of serial rapist then? If that's the norm, what in his psyche makes him above that or different? Paul's the type of guy who will drive 30 minutes for a good pizza. Yeah, that sounds about right. He was all about convenience. So, I mean, if he's already driving and he sees somebody, he's not going to, like, miss that opportunity to rape them. Interesting. Meanwhile, Paul and Carlo's relationship was quickly blossoming. She was learning what it meant to be a good, submissive girlfriend to Paul, writing him a three-page apology letter after telling him that she was not a virgin when they met, and purchasing a dog collar to wear for him. Was it like a leather collar or a choke collar? It was like a studded leather collar. The typical Ah. BDSM type of thing. I was imagining a choke chain. Which, thank God, I've never had someone come into my work (laughs) to purchase a dog collar for themselves. So Carla named Paul's penis Snuffles, and I don't know why. It just seems so opposite of the relationship. But she was, you have to keep in mind, she was 17, 18 at this time, so she was still a teenager. In August, the two took a trip to Disney World together. It was here they discovered their mutual love of making sex tapes together. Whoa, whoa, whoa. At Disneyland? In the hotel. Disney oh. World. Disney World. Oh, it's acceptable to make sex yeah, tapes at Disney World. Yeah, No rules in Florida. Yeah, no, it was in the hotel. They weren't, like, going on splash mountain and making sex tapes together calling their sex tape splash mountain (laughs) (laughs) i was thinking that this is probably the reason that katie gets all like weirded out about adults that love disney i'm weirded out by adults that love disney i've never been though i've never been to disney so there may be something to it that i'm missing very overrated that's whatever that's what i think they also took numerous polaroids most of carla nude in various positions some including paul some including the infamous wine bottle. What makes the wine bottle infamous? Do you remember last episode where I said that Paul asked all of his girlfriends to insert wine bottles into their vagina and anus? This is where that information comes from and interviews with his ex-girlfriends or there are actual pictures of... No, there's pictures of her vagina with wine bottles in them. I'm pretty sure. No, all of this is very much under lock and key because Canada does not have as... Sunshine laws. Yeah, they don't have as open book policy as we do regarding their criminals and their crimes. Interesting. After returning from their trip, Paul was apparently satisfied enough with Carla that he did not feel a need to commit another rape until October. A little less than a month later, Paul raped an 18-year-old in her parents' backyard. And almost two months later, on December 27th, Paul attempted to rape another woman, but she was able to chase him off. Although police were not on to him, people around Paul were starting to notice his odd behavior. One woman that worked with him happened to see Paul at a bus stop, sitting in his car like he was waiting for something or someone. She attempted to wave, but Paul was so entranced by whatever he was waiting for that he did not notice her. The next day at work, she lightheartedly joked that she'd seen him at the bus stop and he must be the Scarborough Rapist. Is that really a lighthearted joke? In Canada? Canada. I guess so. (laughs) Paul got extremely defensive, telling her she shouldn't ever accuse someone of something like that. Although it was odd, it wasn't really evidence of anything, so she chalked it up to her overactive imagination. I don't know. It's weird that she was kind of, like, right on. Oh, yeah. Like, if you notice someone has, like, weird rapist tendencies, you should probably call them on it. 
Yeah, and if they get weirdly defensive, you're probably correct. Yes. Paul took a six-month break, once again confusing Erwin and Wolf, who were now working full-time on the Scarborough rapist cases. He reappeared on June 20th, 1989, when he attempted to rape a young girl, but was chased off by neighbors. I wish some of these people would actually, like, catch him. They're all chasing him off. Catch him! Is he really fast? He was athletic. (sighs) Okay. Generally, your first, I guess, instinct is to go to the victim, rather than chase after somebody with a knife. He waited two months until August 15th, 1989, before he successfully committed his eighth rape after the two previous attempts. Three months passed and Paul attacks and rapes his ninth victim, a 15-year-old girl, on November 21st. At this point, Paul takes yet another long break before he attacks again. This was due to some major events happening in his life. Carla had found a job working at a local animal hospital, but not long after starting was accused of stealing ketamine. She denies it ever occurred, but based on her future behavior, it's entirely possible she was indeed responsible for the missing meds. She quit in December 1989 and found another job at the Martindale Animal Clinic working as a technician. Paul also chose to quit his job at this time. He was working as an accountant at Price Waterhouse, but felt he couldn't fully realize his potential there. Instead, he decided the best career for him would be smuggling cigarettes from the United States into Canada. He made his first run on December 8, 1989. The very next day, apparently feeling his future was prosperous and he found the woman of his dreams, Paul proposed to Carla at Niagara Falls. How much money was there to be made in the cigarette smuggling business? A lot. He it was, was actually... He was rolling in it? Pretty much, yeah. Eventually, once he got, it, got like really going on it and smuggled probably 50 cartons a run... He was making tons of money because I think they tax cigarettes a lot higher to discourage smoking. It was now rapidly approaching Christmas, and for Detectives Irwin and Wolf, that meant the Scarborough Rapist would be on the prowl again soon. I'm not entirely sure why, but Paul always committed a rape either right before or after Christmas. In 1987, it was December 23rd, in 1988, December 27th, and in 1989, it would be December 22nd. In an attempt to catch the perp, Erwin and Wolf enlisted the help of a female detective. They had her stand in a bus bay for over five hours while they stood watch, hoping the Scarborough rapist would attack her. Instead, while they were on their stakeout, a woman was attacked in an underground parking garage. What was unique about this rape was that the victim was almost positive that there was someone with the man, possibly a woman, and it seemed like the woman had a video camera. Because she had been beaten badly, both the victim and police were unsure how accurate her account of the attack really was. But, if she was right, that would mean that Paul had taken Carla with him to watch and record. Gross. Seems fairly likely, probably, based on um, just what they were already seeming to ramp up to. Yeah. I wonder if it's just because everyone's home for the holidays that he gets real emboldened around Christmas time. Everyone's out of school. There are people that are visiting town that aren't usually there. What do you think? I'm not, I'm honestly not entirely sure why, because obviously he did it throughout the year, but it was always, pretty much you knew if Christmas was coming, he was going to attack somebody. And I don't think that having more people around would encourage you to go out and commit more rape. Once again, Paul took a long break after his Christmas attack. Over the holiday, Carla introduced him to the movie Criminal Law, which would quickly become their favorite film. Do we know what it's about? 
It follows the life of a serial rapist and murderer named Martin Teal. If they didn't already have the idea brewing in their heads, it was most likely this movie that gave them the confidence to eventually move on to their more serious crimes. In January 1990, Paul got another job at an accounting firm, but quit two months later. Rather than giving notice, Paul just stopped showing up. His home life was hectic, as he was still living with his parents at this time, who, if you recall from the last episode, were not the most well-functioning family. What were they into again? His dad wasn't his real dad, and his mom called him a bastard all the time. Ah, yes. The one thing that was going well for him was his relationship with Carlo. The two had chosen their date for their wedding, June 29, 1991, and picked out the church. After quitting his new accounting job, Paul decided that a fruitful venture would be to start a worm-picking business with a friend. Got worms. Is that what they called it? I don't think they named it. Oh. oh why would you not name... Okay, what would you... First... All right, hang on. <laughs> I've already got mine. What would you name your worm business? Dormed. Dormed? Dormes. Do worms, that's what I'd call it. Do worms, Katie? Oh, I don't know. You go. I'm still thinking. I didn't ponder this as long as you guys, apparently. Uh, wormy, wormy, slither time. Wormageddon. That's a good one. <laughs> I could probably come up with some other ones, but I'm so blown away by how bad yours is. Could you say it again? <laughs> no. Wormy, wormy, slither time. <laughs> Whoa. At wormy, wormy, slither time, we've also got snakes. That's actually a, a great name. Ooh, or early birds. Because you can get the worms here. Yeah. Katie. I'm sure there's already a business named that. Early birds worms? Yeah. Katie, what's your worm business? I don't know. Tunnel vision. Although the friend was suspicious of the idea at first, Paul convinced him that there was very good money just waiting to be plucked out of the ground. Ah, uh, yes. As Canadians call it, brown gold. According to Google, worm farmers can make anywhere between fifteen dollars and $150,000 a year. But my guess is it's more of the former and far less of the latter. How many worms do you have to sell to get $150,000? Thousands. How do you farm them? You just pick them out of the ground. <laughs> Look, here's They were the putting thing. them in pantyhose. Hmm. The guy who sells... All of his worms to all of the pet smarts and all of the pet co's makes $150,000 a year. Paul convinced his friend to buy a van for their newfound business. Then the rain started. I thought worms loved the rain. So did I. I thought like chickens actually like uh, mimicked uh, rain sounds by stamping their feet in order to get worms out of the ground. Well, yeah, because they don't want worms don't want to drown, so they come yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. I I, I don't. I'm not well-versed in the worm farming business. Neither was Paul. Yeah. So. <laughs> He's like, we got to outlast this rain. <laughs> <laughs> the worms all come out of the ground. Should we harvest them right now? No. I think they go further into the ground so they don't drown. No, that's why you always see them on sidewalks after it rains. That checks what? out. <laughs> that checks out. I saw it in an episode of Matlock. You walk outside and you see earthworms on the sidewalk? Yeah. That, do you get, that doesn't happen in no. Tucson? Oh, that happens regularly in Utah. Like, after it rains, there are just worms. Yeah. You guys have never seen dried earthworms on the sidewalk? I don't know why, but you can't pick worms when it rains. So, Paul and his buddy spent a few months sitting in their van in a McDonald's parking lot. 
Out of nowhere, Paul sold the van he had not originally purchased, gave his friend a little bit of his money back, and dropped contact. Apparently, he was not cut out for the lucrative worm business. Oh yeah, you gotta have a lot of dirt on everyone around you. During one of his sitting sprees in the McDonald's parking lot, one of Paul's victims spotted him. She immediately called police and told them her rapist was sitting in a parking lot and they needed to get there ASAP. Is that why he sold the van and dipped? He saw no, her? I don't think he had any idea. I think it was just time. Time to move <laughs> on up. Time to pack up the worm. <laughs> it just happened to work out that he got rid of the van and they gave up on the worm farming business right as they went to try to find him. Well, four months of sitting in a McDonald's parking lot trying to outlast the rain. Yeah. On April 4th, Erwin and Wolf picked the woman up and staked out the parking lot all day, waiting for the van carrying her rapist to arrive. She never saw it again. So that was just the bad timing. Mm -hmm. He had just left. So I, I guess it took them a little too long, April 4th. What day did she originally see the van, do you know? I don't. Honestly, no. But with Erwin and Wolf, I know that they didn't want to talk shit, but they didn't do things quickly. So I don't think it was like same day. She didn't call them and say, you need to get here. And they were like, we're there. I think it was probably a few days before they went and had another stakeout, which was not successful once again. I think they're bringing the wrong donuts. After quitting worm farming, Paul went back to smuggling cigarettes, this time going into business with the Smyrnas Brothers, who we briefly talked about in the last episode. The Smyrnas Brothers Cigarettes Company. If they could have named it that, they would have. But <laughs> That's a good name for a cigarette company. It was what they were doing was illegal. So uh, that's why you got to take the cigarettes, take them out of the Marlboro packs, rebrand them, put them in Ziploc bags, and write Smyrna's Brothers cigarettes. Smyrna's Brothers smuggling is also a very good name. Ooh, damn! They could have had a whole alcohol and cigarette line if they'd have just been doing it legally. It's a good name. By this point, Paul was basically living with the Homolkas in St. Catharines. He also decided to file for bankruptcy, despite making a decent amount of money in the illegal cigarette business. He had over $25,000 in debt, but decided that taking a hit to his credit and having that money forgiven was far better than paying it off. His life was finally back on track. His life was finally back on track. He escaped his parents, was making very good money, and of course had Carla by his side. By May 26, 1990, he was feeling so good about his life, he decided to commit another rape. The 19-year-old woman was attacked in a similar fashion to the other 10 rapes, being attacked as she stepped off a bus. This time, though, Paul returned to the scene after the assault was over, biting the woman's breast and ripping out a handful of her pubic hair. So wait, he came back and did that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he left her and then started leaving the scene and then turned around and came back. Do we know why? Because he, he wanted, wanted a hank of pubes. Like other victims, she got a very good look at Paul and was able to create a strikingly similar composite. Like other victims, she got a very good look at Paul and was able to create a strikingly similar composite. Because Erwin and Wolf's strategy of not releasing the previous drawings had brought them no closer to catching the Scarborough rapist, they released this one to the public. And the entire public was like, holy shit, that's the best looking guy from Whoville. Almost immediately, people began recognizing Paul and calling it in to the police. Nothing would be done for over two months. That seems like a lot of time to not do anything about a rapist in your community. With that many, like with a bunch of calls coming in, yeah. Um, I mean, when you release a composite, you get like pretty much inundated with people calling and saying that this person looks like somebody they know. So he probably just got mixed in 
into that, but still they had some pretty good evidence that it might be him. Because Paul had been spending so much time at the Homolka household, he'd become close with the entire family, not just Carla. This was especially true with Tammy Lynn, Carla's 15-year-old sister. For quite some time, Paul had been telling Carla that he was very interested in the young girl and that if she really loved him, she'd let him quote-unquote do it to Tammy. Her, her little sister? Yes. What did she say about that? She said, sure, Paul, I will let you do that. In July, the Homolkas were having a party at their home and began running out of booze. Paul offered to head into the U.S. to grab some more, and Tammy begged to go with him. Is it easy to just jump into the U.S. to get booze and back to Canada? Yeah. They don't, like, stop you at the border? Be like, hey, can't be drinking that now, hey. He, of course, readily agreed to alone time with her, and Carla was left behind. The two were gone for hours, during which time Paul said that they got drunk and made out. Although Carla was upset that Paul was obsessed with her sister, she felt that keeping it in the family was far better than Paul going out and raping random women. You know what's better than all of that? Not raping anybody. Turning him into the police. To help him fulfill his fantasies, Carla broke the blinds in Tammy's room so Paul could peep in on her while she undressed. She and Paul also began having sex in Tammy's room and using her sex toys, all while Carla pretended like she was Tammy. This worked for Paul for a while, but eventually he decided that he wasn't satisfied by Carla pretending he wanted the real Tammy. So when they when they went in his car and were gone for hours to go to the U.S. to get the booze, what happened then? Did they really just make out the whole time? Did he drug her? We have to take Paul and his word on this one because Tammy's not alive to tell us. Just seems like if she was already making out with him, then why would you have to go to all the trouble to rape her if you could just... It's rape is not a it's not a sex thing. It's a power thing. He doesn't get off on the sex part. He gets off on being in control part. Ah. Carla was readily prepared to make this happen, because she worked as a tech at an animal clinic. She had easy access to drugs. She stole Valium from her job and crushed the pills into powder, sprinkling it on Tammy's spaghetti one evening so she would pass out. Once she was fully drugged and falling asleep in her bed. Paul went into her room and masturbated, ejaculating on her pillow. He then tried to rape her, but the Valium hadn't been enough to keep her fully asleep. Tammy stirred and Paul had to stop, leaving before she woke up and realized what was going on. The two continued their attempts using the Valium over the summer until Tammy caught on. Her best friend Norma was over more often than not, and the two began to notice that Paul was constantly doting on them. He would always bring them drinks and food until they began to notice that something wasn't quite right. In their drinks, they could see small white flecks floating at the surface. They originally laughed it off, joking back and forth that Paul and Carla were trying to do something to them. Eventually, it lost its humor and became scary as they realized that Paul and Carla were absolutely trying to do something to them. They snuck into Carla's room one night while she was out and went through her hope chest, where they found a small baggie of white powder. From that point on, they dumped everything Paul gave them and got their own. Smart. So Norma, they were drugging her too just because they wanted her to be passed out, obviously, so she wasn't a witness. Oh, no, he would have sexually assaulted her too. He 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 eventually does. We're going to talk about that probably next week. Oh, okay. So they'd just go with whatever they could get, whatever they could do. If he could get both of them, he would be far more happy than probably just with Tammy, but... And then... Carla would be able to call herself a good 
wife for the foreseeable future. That's what her goal was. A few months, probably, and then he would want to do it again. From the beginning of the Scarborough Rapist investigation, Erwin and Wolf had collected over 130 samples and sent them out for testing. In September of 1990, forensic scientist Kim Johnston called Erwin and let him know that she was able to get a blood type off the panties of the rapist's last victim. Their perp was a non-secretor, which only accounted for 20% of the male population. And a non-secretor is? Your saliva and I believe your ejaculate doesn't contain your blood type. Really? I mean, I knew that. I learned it on Matlock. Oh, and I just remembered Andre Chikatilo was also a non-secretor. Yes, he was. Out of their suspect list, the blood typing would narrow it down to probably two or three people who they could then take DNA from for comparison. Erwin began going over his list again and the list of possible matches to the composite sketch they had released. Paul Bernardo's name caught his attention. While looking at his file, Erwin found the report filed by the sergeant regarding the attack on Paul's ex, Jennifer. He was beginning to look like a very good suspect. It wasn't until November 19th that Erwin was able to interview Paul. The interview lasted a little over half an hour, during which Paul denied any connection to the rapes and happily gave a blood sample for comparison. Erwin's suspicions were lowered by Paul's cool demeanor, and he was all but forgotten about. So, they have a... You know, pretty good suspicion here. They've got a bunch of people who have called in saying that Paul looked like the sketch. And then he just comes in like the Fonz and is so fucking cool that, ah, fuck, that that guy can't be a murderer. I mean, they still need hard evidence and they had it with the blood typing. But if it's the 1990s and um, any sort of forensic testing that you would do is not quick. It takes a very long time to get even stuff like blood typing back. Two episodes? Probably. I hope it's only two, maybe three. No, I meant how many episodes of Matlock would it take to get the blood typing oh, back? I thought you meant before they would catch him and we would end talking about this. Had Erwin decided to arrest Paul or even put him under light surveillance, it may have prevented the events that were about to occur. Ever since Carla had failed at drugging Tammy with Valium, she had been planning a way for Paul to successfully rape her sister without anyone finding out. She believed that Paul deserved whatever he wanted, and he wanted Tammy more than anything. Giving her sister to Paul to rape would be her Christmas present to him. Most people do, like, socks. Jewelry. Jewelry, socks, electronics. Carla began studying the Compendium of Pharmaceuticals and Specialties, a large book listing basically every drug, its uses, side effects, and proper dosages, generally used by medical professionals. I'm surprised she could even read that thing. She was looking for a medication that would knock Tammy out completely and not allow her to wake up for quite some time. She eventually decided on the sleeping medication Halcyon. Because it was frequently prescribed to animals as well as humans, Carla could get it easily. Part of her job as a tech at the animal clinic was ordering medications. She would simply walk across the street to the pharmacy, let them know what they needed, and provide the vet's name, no written prescription required. I'm guessing that they don't do it like that anymore. I doubt it. Carla also wanted to take some precautions and ensure Tammy would stay asleep the entire time Paul was raping her. She knew of an anesthetic called halothane, something they used during surgery at the clinic. Halothane was much more dangerous than halcyon, as it had to be vaporized and administered one or two parts per hundred parts of oxygen, or it could cause the animal to die. 
One benefit of the drug, though, was that it was unregulated, meaning Carla could take one or two bottles and no one would be any wiser. So is this like super chloroform? I guess, yeah. I mean, it's an anesthetic. It puts you to sleep. Super strong. That's crazy. On December 23rd, Paul and Carla decided it was the day. Tammy was supposed to go to a sleepover at a friend's, but a heavy snowstorm forced them to cancel, leaving Tammy at home. Earlier that day, Paul had crushed the halcyon pills into powder in the basement. Their video camera had new tapes and was ready to go. That evening, the family all hung out in the living room, drinking and preparing for the holiday. Tammy was drinking pretty heavily for a 15-year-old girl, and Paul and Carla were supplying her drinks. As the alcohol and halcyon began kicking in, Tammy suddenly blurted out, quote, these guys are trying to poison me. Surprisingly, either no one heard her or no one cared. And there was a bunch of people around when she said that? Yeah, I have a feeling everyone took it as the alcohol they were giving her, as like a joking, like, right. oh, are you trying to poison me? And not, these people are literally trying to poison me. Eventually, after everyone had fallen asleep, the halcyon finally kicked in and Tammy was asleep. They poked at her for a moment to ensure she'd stay asleep, then got the video camera and halothane. Carla positioned herself sitting behind Tammy with her head in her lap and poured the liquid halothane on a towel and held it up to Tammy's mouth and nose. Paul began filming the rape as he and Carla argued about him putting a condom on. After a while, Paul told Carla to join in assaulting her own sister. He filmed as Carla briefly performed oral sex on Tammy, as Carla said fucking disgusting because Tammy was on her period. I promise I'm not sharing that information because I want to, but because it'll be an important part of the trial and our later discussions. Carla got back up to check Tammy's breathing while Paul began sodomizing her. Paul suddenly got the feeling that something was wrong right as Tammy vomited. Because she was on her back, she aspirated the vomit into her lungs. Carla freaked out and turned her over, attempting to clear her airway and prevent any more vomit from being inhaled. As she was dying, Paul and Carla drugged Tammy across the floor to Carla's bedroom and dropped her. They quickly redressed her and Paul began performing CPR while Carla dialed 911 and hid the drugs. An ambulance came and took Tammy to the hospital, but it was far too late to save her. She was pronounced dead not long after arriving. Police also came, some going with the elder Homolkas to the hospital, while one officer stayed behind to talk to Carla, Paul, and Carla's other sister, Lori. Oddly enough, the officer that stayed behind at the house seemed to be the only one that found anything strange. Tammy had a large, bright red chemical burn around her mouth and nose, and the officer questioned what it may have caused it. Doctors believe that it had just been an acid burn from Tammy's vomit. Do people normally have, like, super acidic? I know vomit's like probably pretty, like, acidic, but I've never had my own vomit leave burns on my skin. They honestly actually never figured out what caused this, because it wasn't the halothane, because you could actually apply it pretty much directly to your skin. So they more than likely what happened is something on the towel that she was pouring it on had a chemical reaction and burned her. Yeah, so like a dirty towel and then two chemicals mixed on or, the towel. Or it was clean and they had like used bleach or something to wash it. Yeah. Without performing an autopsy, Tammy's death was ruled accidental, complications from the mononucleosis she was getting over at the time of her death. No one thought to question the situation again, and Paul and Carla, at least for now, got off scot-free. So there was no physical signs left over from the abuse or they just didn't actually look for it i don't think they looked for it they had no reason to and if they didn't perform an autopsy they they wouldn't have done a rape kit on her just because she had shown up at the hospital dying 
Just seems like something you'd run a toxicology report for or something. There's a surprising amount of deaths that are somewhat suspicious, and there's really no reason for people to die that they don't run tox screens on. Unless the parents had requested it, they never would have done it. They would have just said, basically drowned in her own vomit. Is, is that going to do it for this week, Katie? That's it for this week. We're going to continue next week, unfortunately. Oh, Part goody. three? Yeah, I was being very naive when I said last week that we were going to get this all done. <laughs> So be ready for part three of Paul and Snuffles and Carla Hamalka. Yes. All right, guys. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R, cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast. Our new Facebook group, Four Corners Crimecast Discussion Group, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscast. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can get a full episode list. You can send us an idea for an episode uh, that you would like to hear, or you can get your free sticker by putting the code Bingo Bango in checkout at our merch store. So have a good one. See ya. Talk to you later. Adios, motherfuckers. I was thinking something along the lines of like it looked like an elephant trunk, you know, like snuffleupagus. I was thinking they had a clip. <laughs> <laughs>